On this episode, a thought experiment. The year is 2050. Australia has decarbonized its economy through an unprecedented collaboration between local communities, elected officials, and the private sector. Imagine that. The debate about whether or not renewable energy is financially viable or logistically possible has long since passed. Homes are powered by a mixture of wind and solar. So how did this happen? How did we manage to transition fossil fuel workers into stable, reliable jobs in the renewable sector? How did we fundamentally restructure the global economy that's been based on fossil fuel consumption for the past 200 years? This thought experiment formed the basis of a recent UTS Big Thinking Forum on the economic transition to renewables. Nikki Eisen, director of the Community Power Agency, chaired the panel. Panelists included Dr. Sven Teske, research director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures, Chris Dirksma, sustainable director at the City of Sydney, Professor Brendan McKay, director of the Griffith Climate Change Response Program, Dr. Muriel Watt, principal consultant at ITP Renewables, and Elke Linder, sustainability and environment manager at Toyota. Um, so my first question for you, Elke, is what role did business and industry play in Australia to really shift the national conversation and help get us to take climate change seriously at a national level? Thanks, Nikki. Well, that's a big question, but um, I just start at, first of all, I want to say that it was really important in, in the early days, in the 2000s, that industry acknowledged that climate change is a problem and uh, is um, caused by human activity, so no denial, and really understand that it's a huge business risk, not only, but also risks to the society. So that's the first step, um, that acknowledgement then understanding how, um, how um, the industry or the particular industry, like in my case, Toyota, is contributing to that problem, understanding that, and then building a pathway forward to uh, try to help mitigating that problem. So with this, um, Toyota was one of the first organizations that um, developed uh, uh, environmental, um, Global Environmental Challenge 2050. It's based on... Uh, let me probably show it up there. So this is our roadmap, um, acknowledging that we have to do something. And by 2050, we have to be zero emission. But it's not just zero emission um, in regards to our own operation. It's also zero emission in our whole life cycle. So I've got a next slide that shows a bit our uh, global commitment to, and that's a global commitment. Uh, I uh, implement that locally. Global commitment to have all our vehicles to be zero emission all our life cycles, so all our dealers and everyone we touch to take them along and be zero emission, all our operation to be zero emission, then also create this recycling-based society and a better nature and everything in harmony with nature and reduce water use. So overall creating that vision and how, it, how a 2050 could look like. So with that, I guess important is then to invest into research and development. So we've uh, invested quite a lot in hydrogen uh, development. We developed this Mirai, you might have heard of, which is called the future, which we're heavily promoting. And on the next slide, you see a picture of that. Um, that was actually launched on the 30-year anniversary of Back to the Future, because you can actually fuel the Mirai with uh, hydrogen, which can be made out of all sources, including waste. So the uh, Back to the Future comes true. Um, so with that, having all these um, having this availability then working closely with governments and industry 
to really try to implement and uh, leapfrog of this technology, make it work, and educate people that it's easily available and um, it's actually usable today. Um, so with that, the last slide is basically then moving from that, not just looking at the, pro uh, the product itself, but Toyota currently is on a big transition to actually a mobility solutions company. So not just vehicles or owned vehicles, it's also the solution, a combined solution of all principles and not just vehicles. So um, with that, um, creating in 2050 that vision, and if I'm si still sitting here 2050, um, I hope these um, challenges came true and that we achieved all our ambitious goals because they are ambitious, especially with the life cycle emissions we're trying to achieve zero emissions. Thank you. <laughs> So, Chris, how did leadership from, uh, at the city level from organisations like City of Sydney start to translate to leadership at higher levels of government in Australia? So, to do that or to answer that question, I, I really wanted to paint a picture about 2050. But uh, first of all, I think we'll come back to late June in 2019 when uh, Council declared a climate emergency. And this was really um, not something that the council particularly wanted to do, but it was a consequence of the lack of action that had happened for the decades before, before then. Um, at the same time, it was also revising its 2030 strategy to 2050. And uh, um, as the city is known for, it had been listening to many of its stakeholders, from business to residents to visitors um, to people from uh, other areas within Metro Sydney to people out in the country as well, because everyone feels a sense of ownership of the centre of the city. And what was coming through loud and clear there was that people wanted a green city. And I, when I say a green city, what led was a physically green city, trees uh, and green walls around the city. And so when you walk through the city in 2050, uh, because there won't be any cars in the city in 2050, uh, because uh, the delivery vehicles will be restricted to after hours or after uh, late at night. Um, there will be huge levels of economic activity because the studies um, that show that as you um, allow people to enjoy your city, actually the economic activity within the city also increases. And so um, the livability of the city actually increased when the city started to take really serious action on climate change. Um, that led to um, an understanding that um, in order to green the city, um, that 80% of its carbon footprint was actually because of the electricity that was coming into the city. And, uh, and so through its partnerships at the city, um, it used its, all its influence it could in order to procure more uh, green energy. And the grid was also greening, but the grid wasn't greening at a fast enough rate in order to achieve our climate targets. And so um, through the will of the people who were saying that they want to see less voluntary action and they actually want to see more mandated action, the, uh, the building standards of the city were increased in order to ensure that the efficiency of buildings going forward when combined with um, the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in the grid were able to meet its Paris commitments. Um, beyond that, the city acknowledged that it was only one council of about 31 councils in Metro Sydney. It was only one city of many capital cities in Australia and one city in a global context. So it used its partnership and influencing capabilities to help others to create um, uh, sustainable cities as well. In particular, in Sydney, um, it 
it extended a hand of friendship out to um, country institutions, the Country Women's Association, um, NGOs who also helped climate action in the country, and started to rebuild the bond between the city and the country. And through that collaborative approach, was able to build the consensus around climate action and really drive the city forward. And so I think that's a, that's a, a you know, uh, part of the recipe anyway in terms of getting a, a city to a sustainable future. Thanks, Chris. So, Muriel, back in 2019, the, no, 2018 even, the International Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change recommended that countries like Australia needed to get out of coal power by 2030 if we were to have any hope of meeting, of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees. Did we do it? And how did we do it? We did do it. Um, and it's not as hard as it uh, might seem. Um, our trajectory at the moment, if uh, you can put the, the first slide up, our trajectory at the moment is, uh, is to have zero coal by 2050 without doing much other than wait for the current plants to shut down at their scheduled rate. So our job then was um, to accelerate the coal plants closing. Um, and what we did was uh, use the current fossil fuel subsidies uh, that are about $1,000 per person per year in Australia and used that to incentivise or to help the towns and cities that already had 100% renewable energy targets and so on. I think we've got 100 communities, uh, community groups. 105 community groups in Australia already with 100% renewable energy targets. Uh, so we've already got the groundswell of public uh, and community uh, wanting to do this. But as we saw at the last election, while you know, the tension between wanting to do something on, for climate change and the job losses that were associated with uh, the coal mining sector in particular, the Adani mine and the Hunter Valley mines were particularly in, in that election cycle. So we had to do something to create new jobs in those uh, areas so that the people who uh, were going to lose the coal jobs knew that there were exciting, much nicer jobs for them to move to and that they were going to be helped with that transition. So the fossil fuel subsidies that currently support the coal industry went uh, to support the development of new industries in renewable energy and recycling and uh, the, the production of... Uh, the, we've, Australia has a lot of resources that are used for batteries and, and solar cells and so on. So we developed those industries in Australia rather than always shipping raw materials out and buying them back as finished products. So it started with community and we leveraged that to the point where, well, maybe federal government climate policy was not as critical a component as other things, even though I think by the time the community is really on board with climate change, politicians get dragged along. Thanks, Muriel. So, Brendan, we've heard a lot about technology. Let's turn to the biosphere. 
who really stepped up and took on deforestation and degradation? How did that happen? Yeah, well, it was very, it's a very interesting story. And, of course, my memory is very hazy. I'm a very old man now. It's 2050. <clears throat> that was a long time ago. But, you know, the, the, the change was so transformational that it's engraved forever in my mind as to what happened. But the turning point was an extraordinary day. It was the annual conference of the parties for the Climate Change Treaty in December 2020. And for the first time in the history of the treaty, all the national governments agreed that policies around forests and climate would be determined by science, rather than political horse trading, which is what had been going on for 30, 40 years. Now, this was... Why was this the turning point? Well, people started to look at what role forests actually play in the global carbon cycle. And we heard earlier that <clears throat> in the modelling that uh, we couldn't have achieved it without the forest. Well, why is that? Well, this is where the numbers are very important. So I think we heard that back in 1920, there was a global, what was called the global carbon budget for 1.5 degrees. That was the, if you like, think of it positively, that was the permissible emissions. That's how much carbon we could use and still stay within 1.5 degrees. And it was about 100 billion tonnes of carbon, which sounds a lot, but not when you think we were burning 10 billion tonnes a year. So it was only about a decade's worth. <clears throat> well, everyone had been thinking about, we've got to stop fossil fuel emissions, which is true, and they'd not quite listened to the scientists who were telling them about how much carbon is in forests. So there's about, four, back in 19... In 2020, there was about 4 billion hectares of forest, which stored about, uh, above and below ground, about 800 billion tonnes of carbon. There was about 400 billion tonnes in the living biomass, and there was about 200 billion tonnes just in tropical forest carbon. <clears throat> so there was actually twice as much carbon in trees, in tropical forests, as there was in the global carbon budget. So even if we had eliminated using fossil fuel and had kept deforesting and degrading our natural forests, we would have breached 1.5 degrees. Actually, we would have breached 2 degrees. So how did we do that? Well, there are a number, a number of key steps uh, that the world community took. They immediately put a moratorium on, on deforestation. And whilst that moratorium held, they put in, they negotiated a, a global forest accord that uh, enabled the world to deal with how they would meet the growing need for food supply without clearing more forest, by making better use of existing cleared land, much of which was degraded. And then secondly, uh, if we were going to stop um, logging and degrading forests, where would we get our wood from? Well, the scientists pointed out a very simple fact that Back in 1920, 50% of our wood supply came from plantation, woody crops that we planted, that only covered 7% of earth. So by doubling that to 14%, we could actually meet all our wood supply needs, and that meant we didn't have to use for industrial purposes a natural forest. So what, what was the result of ending the not just the not just deforestation, but actually land uses which degraded the forest. Turns out most of the carbon is in the biomass of big old trees. So if you log and get rid of the big old trees, there goes your carbon. <clears throat> well, we immediately uh, avoided about a billion tonnes of emissions every year, 
just from stopping deforestation and degradation. And that was just an extraordinary outcome uh, uh, when you look at what the global carbon budget was. But there was more, because once we, uh, uh, of the four billion hectares of forest, two-thirds of it had been heavily logged and overused. That meant it had enormous sequestration potential. So by you know, taking our foot off the throat of forests and stop you know, ending what we were, uh, the logging and uh, degradation we were doing, just letting that degraded forest regrow, soaked up another four billion tonnes of carbon a year. So simply by letting natural forests do their thing, we were getting a five billion tonne carbon a year mitigation benefit. And over the course of 20 years, globally, from 2020 to 2050, that, that was about 30% of the solution. 20, 30% of the solution came from simply better managing forests. And there was one more thing that we had to do uh, in order for those benefits to actually be registered. Um, people will be well aware now because this has been so well um, 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 brought into the education system. We have a whole generation of people who are now climate change literate and understand the history of what we went through. But you know, as I mentioned, back in 2020, um, can you believe it, the, the rules and the guidelines and the system of carbon accounting that was set up to govern how we did our national greenhouse gas inventories was perverted. It's true. It wasn't based upon science. So it enabled people to do all this funny accounting stuff so that not all the real emissions coming from the land sector were, were seen. And, and the good work people were doing to avoid emissions were kind of um, covered over. So we fixed the accounting rules, we fixed the guidelines so that when people avoided emissions, that was recorded. And when people did something that actually caused emissions, that was recorded. And, and one of the really important um, uh, actions that came from fixing the rules, fixing the loopholes in the accounting system, was, um, and again, people are going to find this hard to believe, but in 1920, this is true, I'm not making this up, um, old growth forest in the USA was clear felled, chipped, turned into these little wood pellets, pumped into a ship, sailed across the Atlantic to Britain, where they were fed into power stations and burnt to produce electricity. Right? And America didn't have to account for the emissions from wood chipping the forests. And the UK didn't have to account for the emissions from burning the wood, because burning forests for biomass in 1920 was considered clean energy. It's true. Anyway, all those loopholes were fixed. Um, the forest sector got fixed. The world community was supplied with food. We could end deforestation. We could supply the world with the woody fibre it needed for manufactured wood products. And uh, forests were able to make their contribution to um, the mitigation solution. Great. You're listening to Think Business Futures. On this episode, we're going to the year 2050, a time when Australia and the rest of the world have decarbonised its economy. So Sven, a question for you. you we've been focusing mostly Australia-wide, but um, looking globally and looking back, which countries played the biggest leadership role in limiting the climate crisis? Um, the developing countries. Because um, the, if you see in history uh, who developed actually the technology um, of renewables, um, they were all 
small countries. And that was all engineering uh, from small countries. Not a single big country was actually involved. Uh, what, just in the forefront was Denmark. Um, it's the size of an average Australian farm. Um, but it's a country <laughs> um, which actually um, implemented the first electricity-producing uh, wind turbines um, in a scale that is actually usable. Um, and then from 2020 onwards, or actually from 2016 onwards, um, most developing countries um, were um, moving towards renewables. Um, it started with uh, China. At that time, China had half of the renewable energy market. Um, but then it was actually small countries, small developing countries, who realized that uh, renewable energy is um, A, cheaper, B, it's quicker to build, because if uh, you build, if you plan to build a, a, a coal power plant um, until you have the first kilowatt hour of electricity in the grid, on average that takes seven years. In, the in, those, in those seven years, you sink all the money, or you plan all your, uh, you plan all your money. You don't get a single kilowatt hour more electricity in the system, but your population grows and your brownouts and blackouts are more frequent. So they, they realize solar and wind and other renewables can actually follow the demand much quicker and it's cheaper, and therefore they kicked in. And in, in, in uh, 2019, um, more than 60% of the renewable energy market was actually from, from non-OECD developing countries. And, and that actually triggered, again, um, a development to the um, OECD to the industrialized countries who actually started the renewables but then dropped the ball sometimes uh, around 2015. Okay, so my final question before we throw it over to you guys uh, is one for the whole panel. So what was the one technology or solution that played a major role in achieving a safe climate by 2050 that we just weren't particularly aware of back in 2019, 2020? It was really funny. It was the human brain. <laughs> In politicians, perhaps. Everywhere. And uh, I think also computers, because I'm sort of an older generation. I studied engineering without touching a computer. Um, so I did everything sort of by hand and uh, writing and calculator. I uh, had no computer in my study. Um, and at that time, it would have been really problematic uh, to combine solar and wind with um, sort, of, sort of those system integration. But now, um, there's so much sort of software and so much computing capacity available that you can actually do system integration, which wouldn't, be, wouldn't have been possible like 20 years ago. I would say, yeah, as well, like, um, there's no one technical solution. I think all solutions are equally important um, to get us to 2050 and to this. And, and with the computer power, I totally agree. It's more like, how do we, there's so much information out there. And even if I need a graph for, you know, um, climate change related data, it's so hard to find. There's just so much information. I think computers really have the power to just actually combine all that and uh, that might be some kind of leadership needed to actually sort out all that data, put it all together, and if I want to do something or I can put my situation in and the computer would spit out what exactly, how, do, how, how would my ideal scenario look like 
um, under which I can live a zero emission life. And that, that will be different for everyone because everyone will live somewhere else or like, like in, in regards to mobility has to move a different way. Some people are disabled and can't even get out of bed. Some people, you know, like to just live, work at home, they don't need a car. I mean, it's all different. So like one solution where I can plug in, this is my lifestyle. What, what, what do I do? What does it, what's the solution? Like how, do, how is my life zero emission? There was a couple of things in terms of what enabled us to manage the forest challenge, which is really a land use challenge. <clears throat> and so maybe there were three things, and one of them uh, isn't so much technology, but I think a, a attitude. Um, it, it's about having a more respectful long-term view of the land and, and um, being more mindful of, of the long-term productivity of the land. I mean, we wasted just too much land back, back in the early part of this century. Too much land was just being degraded and, and, and left to waste, and we'd go onto the new green field and, and, and clear that, rather than trying to make the best use of the, of the land that we had. So that was kind of a mindset. A lot of that drew upon traditional knowledge of Indigenous Australians, the, that caring for country concept, um, which kind of got picked up mainstream, I guess, through land care in regional Australia. And that, that actually grew and blossomed and, and became very influential. A, a second is actually satellite imagery, because we're only able to really gauge the scale of the deforestation, deg degradation problem once we started to get these global um, coverages from sat satellite-based imagery that could actually track uh, uh, and help us understand what was going on. Yeah, so there were two things that made a huge difference. I was thinking of a technology. We focus very much, particularly the discussion in Australia, is on electricity. And we forget that uh, something like 40% of the energy that we use is for heating and cooling. And so I was thinking, what would uh, it be like if we had uh, a new insulating technology that could wrap around our buildings or be used in all our commercial and industrial and residential buildings to totally eliminate that heating and cooling load from our energy budget? That would immediately make it so much easier then to supply the other 60% that, uh, of our energy needs by the renewable energy electricity and other technologies that we s focus most of our, our discussions about in Australia. So that was what I was thinking, this, this, this new technology. The, the other more general view follows on from the discussion about the community driving change the way our uh, energy discussions have been held in Australia, it's very much this top-down approach of mega builds and, you know, very large installations, uh, very large new hydro systems, very large new transmission lines. Do we need a very large new coal-fired power plant and so on? And do, should we go nuclear, which is even larger? So... It, which is totally at odds with what we're seeing coming from the community, which is saying we want local solutions, we want things under our control in our area using our own labour, our own resources, uh, and, and that gives you a very different um, outcome and a different way of designing your system to supply a, a much more autonomous regions of... Uh, 
of local demand and local supply. And uh, I see that as another part of the solution. I'd say um, the philanthropic industry from the US realised that in 2030 that Australia would be responsible for 17% of the global emissions because of the export of its fossil fuels and realised that the population actually wasn't that big and there was a smaller number of people that needed to be influenced in order to create change. And so they invested a huge amount of money in investing in changing the dynamic in Australia, changing the conversation. I think to that, um, it's actually not a technology. I think it's going to be about partnerships and uh, people working together. Like I said before, with you know, as a council, we need to work with the other 31 councils. That's probably our first, you know, well, first of all, with our residents and our businesses, which we already do, but then broadening that out. And you know, at the moment, um, councils are really trying to change legislation with one hand tied behind their back. We we don't have the power to change energy and water standards in residential buildings. We don't have the power to put forth um, planning controls for commercial buildings either without going through a gateway process. And we've been blocked from increasing our standards from the state government by doing that. And so what happens is we get collective power between the councils and everyone puts up the same wording, same council resolution to the same council meeting on the same night and we get a, uh, a mass I suppose, change in how the dynamic works. And it gives the people a voice. Local government is the closest level of government to the people. And, um, and that voice needs to be heard more loudly and strongly. I should say to that, the, the technology that's going to make it change is that everyone, including people in this room this evening, are going to realise that actually um, that the technology side is probably the easier part of the equation. The harder part of the equation is influencing the decision makers. And so it's actually about investing in yourselves to make yourselves the best leaders, the best influencers, uh, the best speakers, the best media tarts, the best whatever, you know, in order to create change. And, and that is what's going to change it, not necessarily a particular technology. That brings us to the close of this episode of Think Business Futures. UTS and 2SER, where this show is made, sit on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respect to elders past, present, and emerging. If you'd like to hear more of the UTS Big Panel, check out Talk of the Town on 2SER or search UTS Big Ideas. Until next time.